Well, if you would turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26 this morning, verse 57. After the arrest in Gethsemane, those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. But Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spat in his face and beat him with their fists. And others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray and ask God's help. Our Father in heaven, we pause in gracious spirit of God to ask you to help us to see Jesus in the word. We pray again that you would Open the eyes of our heart, warm our hearts, that we would be taken, captivated by our gracious and glorious King. In his name we ask, amen. Jesus has gone to the Mount of Olives with his disciples. He has prayed. He has won in private prayer the victory over temptation. He has submitted to the Father's will. He knew what he needed to do, and he has stepped forward, and now he has been arrested by a mob, a large crowd, and there were various representatives of the chief priests, and the Roman soldiers were there, and Judas, of course, kissing Jesus and betraying him in that way, in the, in the dark. That way they could know who was Jesus, and it's, it seems like it's, it's all going downhill. This is, this is sad, and if you're the disciples, your mind is spinning at this point. You do not understand what is going on. Even though Jesus had said numerous times that he would go to Jerusalem, that he would be betrayed, that he would be handed over and arrested and crucified, this did not fit into the plan of the disciples, and they have departed, they have fled, and... That is an abandonment of Christ on the one hand. It is also an act of our loving shepherd on the other. He had made certain that 
none of his disciples, none of his sheep would be taken with him. He protected them. And as they were fleeing away, at least two of the disciples turned around and started following after the crowd. That is Peter and then John. We learn from John, the Gospel of John, that John himself was actually known to Caiaphas, the high priest. This is an indication that John, the disciple of Jesus, was, was actually came from a pretty well-to-do and connected family. Among the disciples, there were fishermen and um, there were tax, Matthew, the tax collector. There, there are different kinds of guys, but John's family somehow was known to the high priest, and he had connections there. And as they came to the, the compound where there would be the house of Caiaphas and the house of Annas, more about him in a few minutes, uh, they were able to obtain entrance by way of John. John knew some of the household servants, apparently, and was able to go in not only himself, he was Apparently, it wasn't surprising that John might be there, but he was able to obtain access for Peter. That's how we have this firsthand account. The Holy Spirit has Matthew record it for us, but we have the eyewitnesses of John and Peter on this scene, giving us an idea of, of what took place. With that scene in mind and, and a sense of the setting, I want to step back for a minute with you and consider that the justice system that God had established in Israel. What we see here in the trial of Jesus is a mistrial of the worst kind. It is a show. It is a fabrication in the middle of the night. It is an effort to obtain some kind of legitimacy, some kind of covering for their bloodthirsty desire to murder Jesus. God is a just God. This is one of the attributes of God. He is altogether righteous. There is no untowardness in God. There's no shifting in God. God is, according to Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17, the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the fearsome God who does not show partiality or take a bribe. This is important. This is part of his revelation to his people. You remember when God sent a messenger and Abraham stood next to that messenger and God was about to judge Sodom and Gomorrah and Abraham pleaded with God and said those famous words, shall not the judge of all the earth do right or do justly? God is just. God is absolutely just. He's not partial to one person over another. He doesn't care about status. He doesn't care about connections. He doesn't care about wealth. He doesn't care about background. God is just. He is altogether righteous. And because of that, Israel in its law system, in its jurisprudence, was to reflect the character of God. The the whole law system was framed and, and founded to reflect accurately to the surrounding nations the character of the God of Israel, Yahweh. He's not like the other gods. He can't be bought with a sacrifice. 
you can't bring an extra special big offering on, on to church, so to speak, and hope that God will be inclined to, uh, with your bribe, to judge on behalf of you over and against someone else. There's an abhorrence in the Old Testament law to injustice. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 15 God said to the people, you shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you shall judge your neighbor in righteousness. I mean, that is strong language. You shall never, ever, ever do injustice in judgment. In other words, when a court was assembled in Israel, the judges, the witnesses, every person in that assembly was to be mindful of that they were in the presence of God and that they were to, in their speech, in their behavior, in their demeanor, they were to reflect fear of the living God in whom there is no injustice. God is not, only, is not only just, but he is the God who revealed himself to his people as the Lord, the Lord, abounding in loving kindness and mercy and compassion. God, from the very outset of his relation to his people, was at pains, as it were, to make sure that the weak and the needy and the falsely accused had opportunity to be saved, to be guarded, and to be protected. You remember in the Old Testament, the system of cities. There were certain cities where you could run to. Let's say you were out and you were cutting wood, and by mistake, your axe head flew off your handle and lodged right in the forehead of your friend that you were out cutting wood with. And, and the family back in this town hears about it, and they assume that you murdered him, and they're in an uproar, and, and they're going to kill you because you killed their brother, you killed their family member. God provided a series of cities where that person could flee to and find refuge and where they could obtain a fair hearing, a fair trial. God went to all that lengths because he was so concerned to communicate to his people and to the surrounding nations, he is good, he is loving, he is true, he is kind, he is compassionate, and he is just. Often we... Commonly, evangelicals tend to think of the Old Testament as harsh and God is there cruel and you hear about stoning of people and so forth. But the language of the system of judgment that was set up to protect the innocent is really unknown in the ancient world. Nothing like it. And yes, if someone was guilty, the judgment was severe because the glory and the character of God is severe. So turn with me just for a few moments to a few more passages in the Old Testament. I really want you to see this. Turn with me, for example, to Deuteronomy 16. 
Deuteronomy 16, verse 18. Remember, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the King of Israel. He has come to his own people, to his own nation. The law of God, he loves the law of God. He knows, Jesus knows all these passages. It's his law. And he is the king and it is written upon his heart. And so as he comes to this trial in the middle of the night, he is fully aware of the violation of the law of God that's taking place. For example, God had said in Deuteronomy 16, verse 18 and through 20, you shall not distort justice. You shall, I'm sorry, verse 18, you shall appoint for yourself judges and officers in all your towns, which the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not distort justice. You shall not be partial. You shall not take a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall pursue, that you may live and possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Such a strong language there. You shall not distort justice. And one of the fundamental safeguards against distorting justice was the establishment that for anyone to be found guilty, there had to be at least two, preferably three witnesses of their guilt, of their crime. So, for example, Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6, God said, on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, He who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. That's really remarkable. You have to entertain the possibility that there were situations in which there really was a guilty murderer, someone who had murdered someone else, but there was only one witness to it. And in that instance, God was adamant that unless there were two witnesses, that person, who in that case may have actually killed somebody else, was not to be condemned. Why? Because God was so concerned to maintain justice and defend the innocent. Because what happens when you have a system of law that is not based upon moral principles and founded in the principle and the truth of God, you have a system that favors those who have the most power at that moment. And we're seeing that in our nation. We're seeing the corruption of our law system. It's, it is less and less based upon transferable, timeless, foundational truths. In fact, even the idea of truth in our postmodern age is up for grabs. And so for those who work in the legal system, it's just, it must be incredibly maddening at times because you don't even know if people know what words mean anymore, like male and female. We have, we've, 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 as, as we depart from a biblical worldview in our nation, we're seeing an increasing collapse of 
justice, true justice, and we're seeing the opening the door to abuse of all kinds. The very basis of our own law system is upon this biblical worldview. The whole system of judges and witnesses. God was very concerned with Israel to make sure that the innocent were defended and that the guilty were punished. This is so important that in Deuteronomy, again, in Deuteronomy 19, it's reiterated, verse 15, that there can be no verdict of guilty founded upon a single witness. Verse 15 of chapter 19. A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. If a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, then both the men who have the dispute shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who will be in office in those days. The judges shall investigate thoroughly, and if the witness is found a false witness and he has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he had intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. Not only were there to be two or three witnesses, but if a case was found where there was someone who had borne false witness, whatever that person charged the innocent party with and whatever the verdict would have been and the punishment, that punishment was to be Pass on to the one who bore false witness. After all, one of the very Ten Commandments is Deuteronomy 5.20, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And God warned in Exodus 23, verse 7, you don't need to turn there, keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent or the righteous for I will not justify the guilty. Keep far from a false charge. In other words, if you are around anyone who is lying about somebody else in court or is seeking to raise a false charge to get someone in any trouble, and you're around that person, you want to start backing up. Because there's a God in heaven who vindicates the innocent. And those who bear false witness against the innocent have just welcomed the wrath of God upon themselves. With that background, let's turn back to Matthew chapter 26. Because from beginning to end, the arraignment and the trial of Jesus was a brazen discarding of the law system established by God. And the ones who are brazenly discarding it are the chief priests, the chief judges of the land. They were the ones, remember in Deuteronomy 19, that if you had a particularly difficult case or a false witness, they were the ones you were supposed to go to as a last recourse and surely There you would find righteousness and you would find justice, true justice. But in this case, 
it is the very chief priest himself who is leading in bearing false witness against Jesus. Just consider this for a few moments. First of all, Jesus is arrested without any charge. They just arrested him. He wasn't told why. And at that moment, Judas, when he kissed Jesus as an act of betrayal, when they laid hands on him and actually arrested him, no one in that entire crowd knew why they were arresting this guy other than the boss wants him. And I say the boss because at this point, the chief priest, the religious hierarchy, the Sanhedrin, the, the power brokers, the religious power brokers in Jerusalem, they really were more like a mob, mafia, than they were any semblance of religious leaders. We learn from the Gospel of John and from contemporary historical accounts that there was a man named Annas, and he had been the chief priest for longer than anybody else in Jerusalem. And as being the chief priest, remember, he controlled what happened on the temple. And what we've learned throughout the ministry of Jesus is by this time, the temple complex was big business in terms of corruption. They had everything set up so that with all the various feasts that God had instituted and the people had to come to Jerusalem to worship the Lord, when the sheep of Israel would come, they would be fleeced of their money. And all of that money, the things that were sold in the temple, the, the money changers to, to change in coins that you brought from outside and were maybe pagan to change them into money that could be used and so forth. It all was set up into a, in a way that money just poured into the account, as it were, of Annas, the high priest. And this guy, we know from contemporary accounts, was so powerful, not only Caiaphas, who is the high priest at this point, and Caiaphas is mentioned in chapter 26, verse 57, he was the high priest. Caiaphas was the high priest, but he was the son-in-law of Annas. And so Caiaphas himself was really a puppet. His father-in-law was the power and was the one pulling the strings. And they were all connected. You know how it works. I mean, they all were guilty. They all were covering each other. They all were so steeped in sin and murder and in with the corrupt Roman government, all for their own enrichment, that they had an absolute, complete control on the Temple Mount and in Jerusalem. And Jesus, you have to understand this, Jesus was a threat to their business. Because what had he done? In the beginning of his ministry, even three years ago, he had come in and he had cleared house. And he had told the money changers to get out, those who were selling things, to get out. He, he had no fear, Jesus, of going in and absolutely taking on head-to-head the corruption that he found in the temple purging the temple, cleansing it because he was the king and he loved his father and he loved the people, the sheep who earnestly wanted to worship his father at the temple. And so it's really like a mafia. 
that's how you explain, uh, and I, I have nothing against Italians, um, uh, Mexican cartel, whatever you want to call it. That's the kind of thing here. This is, this is what's going on. These are evil men who have wormed their way into religious positions. And it is an aside, but dear men and women, boys and girls, be aware that Satan still is working hard to put those kinds of characters in positions of religious influence and fleece thousands of people, for example, in New Hampshire and New England, in one of the so-called largest growing churches in America. Yeah. That kind of thing still goes on. It's going on all around. So pay attention to what the Word of God says about qualifications for elders and for those who lead you. If the leaders themselves are corrupt, what are the people going to do? And so... It's a corrupt system. And so you have these corrupt priests, leaders. You have this arrest without any charge. Jesus hasn't been charged. There's, there's no, no one actually can say why he's actually being arrested and treating so, treated so uh, harshly. He's also mistreated in that they try, Annas and Caiaphas, try to get Jesus to implicate himself. They, they try to get Jesus to... In his nervousness, they assume, like most would be nervous, being brought in and they know what they can do to you. And they ask him questions under in the middle of the night and he's under arrest and there's a fearful situation and they're trying to intimidate him. And they're trying, if they can ask him a question and get him just to slip up just a little bit, they're going to use it and they're going to kill him for it. That's illegal. They weren't supposed to allow anyone to bear false witness against themselves unintentionally. They carry out this interrogation in the middle of the night. You're approaching midnight by now. This is, people are in bed. This is, this is taking place, there's no reason this should take place at night. It's not legal for it to take place at night. Jesus is there and he's hauled in. And then, verse 59, we learn, the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus. They're trying to conjure up some, find somebody who can pin something on Jesus. They've had a lot of time. They've got a lot of resources. They own the town. They've got informants everywhere, at every level of society. They've even got an informant in among the disciples themselves in Judas. And even with all those connections, even with all those bribes, even with all of that influence, they can't find one single person that can raise up a charge against Jesus. They can't find any, verse 60. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. (laughs) people who wanted to please the powers that be and be in good with the mob and maybe expected they'd get a little money under the table for if they could bring a right, a charge against Jesus and, and give the 
chief priest what he wanted. The problem was the chief priest at least knew, even though this was an illegal trial in the middle of the night and all these things, they knew that if it was going to go forward and pass any kind of muster with the people, they had to have at least two witnesses that would agree. And the problem was all these bozos that they brought forward in the middle of the night that were trying to tell the chief priest what he wanted to hear, one would say one thing and then the other would say another. And it was obvious to everybody that these guys were making it up. No one could, I mean, they, they desperately wanted to make something out of nothing. But they couldn't. They had nothing on Jesus. And it's worth pausing and reflecting on the innocence of our Lord. I mean, if someone worked that hard to pin something on you or me, maybe they couldn't find something worthy of murder, but if they could dig hard enough, they certainly wouldn't find that we were perfectly righteous, would they? Maybe we've walked before God as we know in our integrity. My point is that Jesus was so holy and so innocent, they couldn't even find somebody to say he talked back to his parents. He was that innocent, and it's a testimony to his righteousness that even though the most powerful persons wanted to arrest, to murder him, and to find a charge against him, And with all of their resources, they could find nothing against him. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. Can you imagine what the judgment upon those false witnesses will be in hell? And again... We need to remember that God is righteous and just. You you have nothing to fear from God if you're innocent. But if you have brought charges against someone who is innocent and sought to harm them, you need to flee to Christ and be forgiven of your sin, else you will forever face the judgment of God in hell. And what of these men who sought to bring a false charge against Jesus? How will God the Father pay them? Fearful to think about. Well, Jesus is standing there. He's been arrested. He's been treated roughly. One of the things we want to note about our Lord in verse 63 is Jesus kept silent. That's a beautiful little sentence kept silent because he's the king. He knew that this trial was a mockery. He knew what the chief priest wanted to do. He knew that these liars were, had nothing on him. Notice that Jesus isn't afraid. He's not nervous. He's not anxious. He is kingly, and he is regal, and he is courageous, and he is innocent. And He does not honor the high priest even with an answer. It's awesome. I love that about Jesus. Uh, He doesn't stoop to the level of an Annas or a Caiaphas. 
he, he's allowing himself to be arrested. He's allowing and permitting himself to stand before these vile men. And don't you think in his heart the king is, has a sense of rage? Not so much for the abuse that he's receiving, but these guys are abusing his people. But Jesus is there at that time not to carry out vengeance for his people, but he's there to be the sacrifice for the sins of his people. Kept silent. He kept silent until, in verse 63, Caiaphas said to him, the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. He invokes the the name of the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus has been standing there. He has been silent. But then in verse 64, he said to him, you have said it yourself. Wow. He, he I mean, you got to enjoy that moment in a sense that he makes Caiaphas essentially acknowledge that he has confessed Jesus to be the Christ. You've said it yourself. Jesus owns it. And we should take this in. Jesus has no mistake about who he is. He didn't grow into an understanding of who he is. He knew who he was from the earliest age. He's the Messiah. <clears throat> he is the Christ. He is the Son of of the living God. And far from averring from the title, the title, not taking it to himself, he says, I tell you, you have said it, he affirms it. And then he says, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus there references two passages, both messianic, some of the most high messianic language in the Old Testament scriptures. The first is Psalm 110, verses 1 and 2, where God says to the Messiah, or David says, rather, Yahweh says to my Lord, God says to my Lord. So David's the king of Israel, and he's saying that God is talking to David's Lord. So there's this Messiah figure, the Christ God says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool under your feet. Yahweh will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, have dominion in the midst of your enemies. Jesus says, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. Jesus is publicly in front of Caiaphas owning, I am the Christ. I am the one that David spoke of. I will sit at the right hand of the majesty on high. Wow. And then Jesus quotes, coming on the clouds of heaven. He's referencing there, it's an allusion to a passage that he's alluded to numerous times. In fact, every time he referred to himself as the son of man, this was the primary passage that he had in mind. It's the messianic title found from Daniel chapter 7. I'm going to read again verses 13 and 14. We've read them numerous times. 
but they shape our understanding of Jesus, our King. There in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel sees a vision of a, a series of beasts, four beasts, and they are representative of four worldwide kingdoms and kingdoms that are in rebellion against God. But then he sees, after these beasts, he sees a vision in which he sees the Ancient of Days, a vision of God on his throne, and fire coming from, out from the throne. And he's surrounded by myriads of angels in the courtroom of heaven. And then Daniel says in Daniel 7, verse 13, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and came near before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every tongue might serve him. His dominion, the dominion of this Son of Man, is an everlasting dominion which will not be taken away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. I adjure you by the living God. Tell us whether you are the Christ the Son of God. And instead of merely saying yes, Jesus quotes from two of the most high messianic texts in the Old Testament scriptures. He owns it. And you're sitting here this morning, and I trust that most of you have believed in Jesus Christ and trusted in him. But it's good for all of us to pause for a moment and to consider, do we believe that Jesus is who he says he is? He is the Christ. He is this son of man. He is coming again and his kingdom will have no end. Are we in right relationship to him? Because he understands himself to be the Christ, the son of the living God, the king of kings and Lord of lords. You can try to make Jesus into something else. Everybody today wants to fashion their own Christ. They want to take a little bit of the teaching of the Bible here, a little bit of the teaching there. Well, this is what Jesus is to me. This is what Jesus is like to me. You can try to do that, but Jesus isn't yours or mine to do with what we want. He is who the Father has declared him to be and who he himself has declared him to be. He is your king and he is mine. We must bow before him, worship him and love him and adore him. The chief priest in verse 65 did none of that. He tore his robes. This is the height of deceit and mockery. He's tearing his robes as a sign of remorse. He's feigning being disgusted that Jesus is blaspheming or he's claiming himself to be the Christ, the Son of God. The, the Caiaphas is claiming to be upset and distraught over this. And tearing of the robes would be a public sign of of grief and, and disgust at this supposed great sin. But the reality is in verse 65, he's not sorry. He's not grieving. He's just gotten what he wants. He needed desperately Jesus to say something that he could use by which he could crucify Christ. That's what he wants to do. And by claiming to be the king of Israel... Jesus, rather Caiaphas, knows he has a case now with the Jewish people because 
Jesus is claiming to be the Christ and the Messiah, and he certainly isn't seeming to be like the Messiah they expected, so he's a false Christ. So the people, Caiaphas thinks the people will think. And as for Rome, Pilate, all they have to say is this man claims to be a king, and the Roman Empire didn't take kindly to competing kings that competed with their authority. So Caiaphas has what he wants. He tears his robes. It's all a lie. It's a show. It's, it's for impact. He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. He's just relieved because he, he knows that the witnesses, it really won't, won't stand up. I, I skipped over verse 61. Some of you have noted that. I just noticed that. That whole, the only thing they'd had up until Jesus' statement was this man who came forward, these two men in verse 61, and said, this man concerning Jesus, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. That quote is from three years earlier when Jesus first cleansed the temple, and that is not what Jesus said. Jesus had declared, destroy this sanctuary, John chapter 2, verse 19. Don't turn there. But John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus had actually said, destroy this sanctuary, speaking of his own body, and in three days I will raise it up. He hadn't said, he had not said that he would destroy the temple. But they'd say in front of Caiaphas, this man said he would destroy the temple. He hadn't said it. And that's all they had. And it wasn't very strong until Jesus owned that he was the Messiah, the Christ. And because of that, Caiaphas tore his robes. They had what they want. He says, verse 66, to other thugs who are around, what do you think? They answered, he deserves death. They just wanted to kill him. There was nothing in what Jesus said that actually was deserving of death. They were just bloodthirsty. And again, it's an abuse of justice. He had been arrested without a charge. He's now been accused of the penalty. He's rather been given the penalty of death on the mere claim that he is really the mere quotation of Scripture. And then they begin mistreating their prisoners, spitting in his face, beating him with their fists. He's blindfolded. They are treating him brutally. And this is just the beginning and mocking him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? Frightening thing is he actually knew. And the father knew. And Maybe some of those men later repented and trusted in Christ, but for those who didn't, there's a special place in hell for these who so abused our Lord. But we would like to, in closing, we would like to simply shake our heads at Caiaphas and Annas and the mob and these religious fakes and phonies. But sadly, one of the things the Holy Spirit is doing here, sadly, in reality, is that this point the true ugliness of our human nature apart from God is, is just being brought up. 
This isn't just Caiaphas. This isn't just a group of religious fakes. This is the bloodthirsty, corrupt, lying, depraved human heart on display. We may not have personally accused someone else in court of something they hadn't done and the penalty would be death. But this, this is in us. This is how evil we are apart from God's grace. This is how corrupt we are. We hate God. We hate the rule of God and the rule of Christ. We'd rather see Jesus killed than bow to him. Which is a wonder and mercy that we are here this morning and we love Jesus. Because unless God had first worked in our hearts, we sang it this morning by grace and grace alone. Jesus knows that he's going to be mistreated. He knows he's not going to receive a fair trial. He knows what's happening is at every single point of violation of the law that had been given to these men in the Old Testament scriptures. And yet he keeps silent and then only confesses the truth. And he does this. Our king is judged to be a blasphemer. And he does so willingly. Like a lamb that is silent, Isaiah 53, verse 7. Like a sheep silent before his shears, he did not open his mouth. Why? Why did he allow himself to be subjected to such a mistrial, such abuse, such a true miscarriage of justice? Why did he allow himself, the one who is truly son of God, to be called a blasphemer? Why? So that you and I and our sins and our blasphemies and our lies and our bearing of false witness could all be imputed to him so he could bear all our sins, all our lies, all our deceptions, all our cruelties. He could wash us, cleanse us, justify us, and make us from liars and blasphemers to those who, by the grace of God, through the blood of Christ spilled on the cross, actually can, in purity, in sincerity, and in holiness, do what we sang earlier this morning. We can stand up and bless the Lord our God. He removes our mouth of blasphemy, and he gives to his people a mouth of blessing. What a king. Let's pray. We continue to be in awe of you, Lord Jesus, as we walk through the scenes here in the gospel. We pray that we would be those who in our own lives bear true witness concerning others, but concerning you. We confess that you are who you said you were. You are the Christ, and right now you are seated at the right hand of our Father. And we do bless you that you take liars 
murderers, deceivers, blasphemers like us. And that you knowingly went to the cross for us. You bore our sins. You bore them away so that we could rise with you and bless your holy name. And so we do this morning in Christ, your name. Amen.